Women have been playing football for more than 150 years, and it's always been political. Some have been celebrated, but others have been ridiculed, criticized, and forgotten. This is the Forgotten 11, the hidden history of women's football. I'm going to the White House. No. You know, there was a lot of critics talking about us, but we're back, so I suck in that one. <laughs> Give me the effing ball. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Welcome to the Forgotten 11, the hidden history of women's football. Today on the show, we're going to talk a bit more about the Dick Care Ladies, and I am joined by Mike McDonald, host of EPLPod.com, a podcast about the English Premier League. Uh, we talk about the difference between modern and historical soccer, and uh, the difference between differences between the men's and women's game at the Forgotten Eleven Bar and Grill. In the fall of 1917, the men or boys of the factory, Dick Cares and company, challenged the women workers to a match. The women won that match. An office worker named Alfred Franklin had watched, and afterwards he said, this lot could fill Deepdale Stadium. On Christmas Day, in their first match, the Dick Cares Ladies FC did exactly that. Dick Cares Ladies hosted Coolheart Foundry women's team at Deepdale Stadium. 10,000 people came to watch this opening match. And the women raised the modern equivalent of 50,000 pounds for the local hospital, Whittingham Hospital. They also won the match 4-0. What no one knew at the time was that the Dick Care Ladies FC would, in the coming years, become the most famous, most commercially successful women's club ever. And all while working full-time at the factory. Alfred Franklin, an office worker for Dick Care and Company, became their manager, and unlike many of the women's teams at the time, he actively recruited players from other teams, securing them jobs at the factory in Preston once he'd recruited them. While the original Dick Cares was a good team, the recruitment policy ensured that the team only got better. Franklin was also very good at marketing and regularly billed the team as the best team in England and the world. By 1920, the Dick Cares ladies had conquered England, so Franklin invited French teams to play in England. Alice Miat was the director of the Federation of Women's Sports Societies of France. She selected the best players from the French women's teams, primarily Femina, Academia, and En Avant. Among other things, Alice Miat was good at creating a story. She uh, fed the English press in Paris little news stories about the, the French tour of England. By the time they arrived in England, they were mobbed by the press. The Daily News announced matches on their front page, and when the French team finally arrived in Preston to play the Dick Care Ladies, the entire town turned out to greet them at the train station. The opening match played at Preston's Deepdale Stadium saw a crowd of 25,000 spectators, a record for the stadium at the time. The French team was described as small and delicate like mannequins. They walked onto the pitch in unison. The Dick Care ladies, on the other hand, stormed onto the pitch before the match. The first match was 2-0 to the Dick Care ladies. The next day they played again, 5-2 to Dick Care. And a third match saw a 1-1 draw. In that match, after the French goal, the French player celebrated with a perfect flip. The last match was going to be played at Stamford Bridge in London. And at this point, the entire national press and the nation was enthralled by the two teams. 
In this match, Jenny Harris, unfortunately, was knocked out early on. Uh, and this was before substitutions were allowed, so the Dick Cares ladies were down to 10 players. The French team won this 2-1. But even though the Dick Care ladies lost, they'd become international superstars. Later that year, the Dick Care ladies were invited to play in France, and of course they went. They won four matches and drew one. But more importantly, tens of thousands of French fans came to watch the matches. By this time, the world is watching. The Dick Care ladies appear in newsreels before films all the time. So let's meet some of the players. Alice Kell is the captain. She played fullback, center forward, and goalie. She's possibly the best on the team in reading a game. She's described as quiet, modest, and charming off the pitch. And according to one program, she occupies the captaincy by virtue of her consistent and excellent play. Floyd Redford usually played as a number nine. One of the best goal scorers on the team is claimed she is the best scorer alive. She's blonde and glamorous. She's described as the conscious conscience of the Dick Care ladies' locker room. She's also a registered nurse. Jenny Harris, inside left. She's four foot ten. She's described as a wizard dribbler and a box of tricks. She's also pretty good at getting goals. Jesse Walmsley, center half, with a big infectious smile. She was poached from Lancaster. Alice Wood, at the time she had held the British woman's record in the 80-meter sprint. She's possibly the scholar of the group. Alice Norris, also a player poached from another team. According to Team Legend, it was Norris who spotted the talent of a St. Helens winger named Lily Parr. Lily Parr is a left winger. She's born in 1905. She grew to be almost six feet tall. She had a powerful kick and could score from just about anywhere on the pitch. She was outspoken, to say the least. She often preferred to be paid in cigarettes. Uh, she played for the Dick Cares Ladies from 1920 until her retirement in 1951. In her first season, she scored 107 or 108 goals, second only to Flory Redford's 170. In 1920, television had, been, had not been invented, uh, so people went to the movies. These were silent films. And today, if you go to the movies, you'll see a bunch of ads for other movies. In 1920, you'd see newsreels before the movie, short clips of whatever the news of the day was. The Dick Care ladies regularly appeared in these movies. They were international superstars. If you uh, go to YouTube and search out Dick Care's Ladies FC and British Pathé, P-A-T-H-E, there are probably a dozen or two of these reels. Uh, you get to see all of these superstars play, including, as we mentioned in the last episode, that first night game under searchlights. Both because of the promotion and the talent they had, by 1920, this was probably the most popular team in England, men's or women's. On Boxing Day 1920, the Dick Harris ladies played the St. Helens ladies at Goodison Park in Liverpool. The stadium was sold out with 53,000 fans and up to another 14,000 outside unable to get a ticket. This attendance record for a women's club match stood for 100 years. 
Rumwood per- suggests that it was the record attendance at Goodison Park at the time for any match, men or women. In 1921, the Dick Care Ladies played just about everybody and everywhere. They toured the British Isles and they played in Scotland, all over England, the Isle of Man. They invited teams from France, Wales, and Scotland, sometimes playing matches every other day. They played short 40 shutout matches. Only two teams were able to score more than a single goal on them for the entire year. They regularly ended matches half a dozen goals up and the crowds are regularly in the tens of thousands. But if you've been paying attention, December 5th, 1921, is the day that the English FA bans women's football. Many teams continue to play, but now there are fewer teams. And Dick Care's ladies are not in the English ladies FA, so they can't play those teams. So, in 1922, it's harder and harder for the Dick Care ladies to find opponents. In 1922, the Dick Care ladies returned to France and played several matches around the country, which is also great news and promotion for the French women's teams. In September 1922, the Dick Care ladies traveled to North America, where they arrived in Quebec. They were told that they won't be allowed to play in Canada, so they head south to the U.S. They play matches in Rhode Island, New York City, D.C., New Jersey, Baltimore, and possibly Philadelphia. I played against them in 1922, recalled Pete Renzulli. We were the national champions, and we had a heck of a time beating them. Yep, all nine matches in the U.S. were played against men's teams, and at least a few of the teams had players who had played in England and Scotland on top teams like Chelsea. The Dick Cares ladies' record, three wins, three draws, and three losses. In 1924, or 25, Dick Cares and company was taken over by a company called English Electric. And this was a bit of a problem for the Dick Care ladies. For a while, they still used the same name, but English Electric bought an electrical manufacturing company, not a football team. English Electric lets them play, and the players can keep their jobs at the factory, but they don't get any time off for the matches. On July 23, 1925, the Transportation and General Workers Union decide that their union would support the coal miners in their strike for better pay, followed by the rail workers union. Those two unions put an embargo on coal throughout Britain. Around this time, English Electric tells the football team, the Dick Cares ladies, that they can't use their training ground anymore. Perhaps because, remember, the women's football teams, including Dick Cares ladies, had supported the striking miners back in 1921. That strike from 1921 is still unresolved in 1925. And now it looks like all the workers in England are about to go on strike, not just the coal miners. So any workers or organizations that support the miners or could help them out have to be stopped. So Alfred Franklin, the manager of Dick Cares Ladies, decides to quit his job at the factory and opens a small grocery store in Preston. The team is officially renamed the Preston Ladies FC, although they are still known as the Dick Cares Ladies FC. Remember that Flory Redford, aside from being a great scorer, is also a nurse. And Dick Cares Ladies, they raised a lot of money for charities. They raised a lot of money for Whittingham Hospital in Preston. And after most of the players lose their job at the factory in 1925 and 26, the players are now mostly employed by Whittingham Hospital.
Despite every effort to shut them down, the Dick Care Ladies FC play on. They continue to play through nearly the entire F.A. band. In 1957, a woman named Kath Latham became probably the first woman to manage and coach a professional soccer team. But in 1965, the Dick Care Ladies take to the field for the last time. Just six years short of the end of the band, Kath Latham says she can't find enough players. In 1992, Gail Newsham, the author of In a League of Their Own, reunites the team for the first time in decades for the Lancaster Trophy ce celebration. And in 1997, they play one last game. All right, what ho, my name is Mike McDonald. I host the podcast EPL Pod, comes out twice a week. I am also the author of three different humor books and former writer for America's Finest News Source, that being The Onion. Great. And for those who don't know, EPL stands for English Premier League. Uh, the, the show is great um, it, it, if you follow the English men's team. Um, so, But I brought Mike here today to uh, discuss you know, women's football. Uh, and specifically the Dick Care Ladies and, and some other stars. So, uh, Mike, you've, uh, you've listened to the last episode. Uh, you've listened to or read, you know, what I was just reading earlier a few minutes ago. Uh, tell me what your impression is of the Dick Care Ladies uh, playing football in, like, 1920, 1917, whatever. Well, first of all, before we start talking about, you know, the Dick Care Ladies and Lily Parr, I want to say well done to you. Um, you know, it seems as though you've got a really good handle on the subject matter. Your guests are terrific. I, I rather pale in comparison to your previous guests. Um, <laughs> I'm very curious, what got you interested in doing a podcast on the subject? Uh, well, it was actually partly you, because uh, you had me on your show a little bit. Uh, but then I realized um, I happen to know a lot about women's soccer, um, and nobody, uh, people are covering... Uh, women's soccer currently, like you guys do with the English Premier League, you're covering it, you know, what's happened today, who's getting traded to who, but it, like Ruth Harker, uh, former goalie for the U.S. team, didn't know that anybody played before her generation. Hmm, interesting. So, and, and so what are, what are the expectations with your podcast? Uh, well, I mean, I, what I would really like is to tell the stories of, of all of these women. Um, I mentioned uh, when I was talking with Gail, every single league, every single time, all over the world, when women start, you know, playing soccer, they're reinventing it from scratch because they don't know anything that about anybody that came before them or anybody in a different country that that did this before. <clears throat> so they <clears throat> they all feel like pioneers, like they're the first. And I want people to know whether it's <clears throat> people that have an interest in the game or little girls coming up. I mean, I, I saw an interview uh, from the BBC a couple of weeks ago. And all, they're just interviewing these young women, teenagers playing soccer, and they like, who, who do you want to be? And they would say things like Beckham or, you know, Messi or whatever. And the reporter's like, well, did you ever hear about Lily Parr? And they're like, who's that? Right. And why do you think that this gap exists in, you know, most of our footballing knowledge? Like, prior to today, if I'm to be perfectly honest, I didn't really know who Lily Parr was. When I read about her scoring, you know, over 900 goals, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here at, at all, she scored 43 goals in her first season at the age of 14 in 1919. Um, you know, yeah. she 
was roughly give or take six feet at a time mm -hmm. when the average height was about five five in you know 1930s europe um apparently she had like a, a dynamite right foot to the point where if i'm to believe what i read she broke a man's arm with a penalty kick did you read that uh, yeah uh so the story goes he was a, a professional men's soccer player uh <clears throat> and i don't i don't remember the team that he played for but he, he was a, a goalie and he said something like you know to the effect of you're pretty good for a girl and so she's like oh yeah well why don't you get in goal and it was not a game but she said why don't you get in goal and see if you can uh you know stop my penalty shot which he apparently did uh but you know this is the old heavy leather ball uh she kicked it hard enough that it broke his arm when he saved it Mm -hmm, yeah, apparently from what I read too, she was quite uh, proficient at playing rugby as well. But back to my previous question, why do you think there is this gap in most of our knowledge base when it comes to the women's game? Well, uh, a big part of it, um, well, there's a couple reasons. The biggest one is uh, the FA ban in 1921. Um, the Dick Care ladies, when they sold out Goodison Park in uh, 1920, 53,000 people showed up. Uh, with another 14,000 or up to 14,000 that couldn't get in, uh, they were the most popular team in England, men's or women's. And so when the English FA banned them from playing on their pitches, uh, it was because they were more popular than the men's teams. Um, hmm. And in, to an extent, by 1920, a lot of these women, uh, like Flory Redford and, and you know, Lily Parr, they were celebrities. I mean, like everybody knew who they were. Whereas, you know, the teams coming back the men coming back from World War One, uh, they lost a lot of talent. Uh, so those, those men couldn't really compete uh, with these women who'd been playing, you know, five years continuously. Uh, they were just better prepared to play good soccer. Hmm. Um, and so throughout most of the British Empire, I, I'm gathering um, that, like, uh, when the Dick Care ladies went to uh, Canada to play, and they wouldn't let them play. Most of what I can tell, the Br the British commonwealth followed the british the, the english fa and banning women from playing so you think it's been a, a history of uh, suppression basically that has led to our deficit in knowledge when it comes to the women's game yeah very, very much so um <clears throat> in uh, france a few years later i mean france never officially banned women from playing uh but it, it, women's soccer got very popular in france uh in the 1920s and uh by the mid-1920s, the French press pretty much stopped covering it. Hmm. I've got a uh, quote here. I'm going to read it, and I want you to guess who wrote it, okay? Mm -hmm. Here's the quote. Complaints have been made as to football being played by women. The council feel impelled to express their strong opinion that the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. So who wrote this? Was it the FA it, or was it the Taliban? <laughs> that, no, that was the English FA. That was the FA in 1921. Can you believe that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they they've been getting complaints from these men's teams for a couple of years, you know, because the war effect, effectively ended in 1919. Uh, so all these guys come back, uh, they get their jobs back, but a lot of the factories where the women are working that are sponsoring the women's teams uh, kept the women's teams, and they'd had more practice recently, you know. Right, right. When I when I read about her career, so Lily played until she was 46 years old, if I'm not mistaken. Um, she worked in a factory and then later a mental institution? Well, uh, uh, it, it was uh, the Dick Cares uh, and Company factory, and during the war, I mean, it's uh, the Munich Cups. So all these factories 
were making the Lutz and Bombs. And so they all worked there, the, the entire team worked there um, until about 1925 or so. Uh, and then uh, s several of the uh, players were certified nurses. So some of them worked at this, uh, this hospital, um, I'm blanking on the name, but I mentioned it a few minutes ago uh, in the previous segment. Uh, but yeah, they, once they uh, start, some of them started working there, it was just like, if you're a dick care lady, you're working at the hospital. You don't, there's no interview, there's no nothing, you just go work there. I think what is also very impressive, and I'm not sure if you've hit on it, is the fact that she was, according to the research that I read, read was um, you know, a pioneer in women's football, of course, but also openly gay at a time when I can't imagine how difficult it would have been to be openly gay back yeah. in the 1930s and 40s. Um, is there enough uh, mention with regards to that and what she did for the LGBT community with regards to sport? Uh, well, so, I mean, my impression is to be openly gay in the 20s and 30s is, uh, you know, they had all sorts of words for it, but it was like you just weren't married, you know, past the age of 25. It was just a little odd. But nobody ever came out. Well, I mean, it's, it's not like today where, you know, a, a star will come out, like, on TV or make an announcement. You know, it's just like, hey, it's not your business kind of thing. Um, yeah, of course. Right. Um, but, yeah, she, uh, in 1951, she, when she uh, retired from Dick Kerr's Ladies, she met, uh, and her partner... Um, who was a nurse at the same hospital. Uh, they bought a house together, and, and that's where they spent the rest of their lives together. Hmm. So, yeah, definitely a, a trailer, trailblazer. Excuse me. When you asked me to come on to the podcast, you had asked, um, you know, whether or not we should talk about um, Parr being, you know, on the same footing as a Messi and Ronaldo. And I think it's difficult to make that comparison for a lot of reasons. You're talking about apples versus oranges. I think just in general, it's difficult to compare older athletes, you know, from a bygone mm -hmm. era to current athletes. When you look at the Premier League, apparently sprinting has been up over 50% in the last 10 years alone, right? So it's like fundamentally a, a different game. When it comes to Lily Parr, I was reading that prior to games, she'd be smoking cigarettes by the sidelines. Oh, so yeah. definitely something that you couldn't do in oh. the modern game, could you? Well, not just on the sidelines before the game, she would actually, you know, in some of the matches, you know, the crowd was up against the sideline. And, I mean, if she w wasn't busy on the ball, she'd uh, walk up and grab a guy's cigarette and have a couple drags off of it. Right, of course. Yeah. So I've got a, a training schedule, if you'll indulge me just for a second. This is sure. uh, 1972, and this is a, a man's training schedule for the Premier League or for the First Division in, in England. The players mm. would arrive at 1030 uh, 11 o'clock, there'd be some light jogging around a track, and then there'd be some ball work at 11.15, and that would be the extent of it. They'd be going home roughly around 12.30, 1 o'clock. When you mm -hmm. look at like a schedule from 2002, uh, players usually arrive at 10 a.m. There's like rehydration with isotonic sports drinks at 10.10, 10, uh, a thorough warm-up at 10.30, technical ball work at 11.15, a lunch, then a fitness session at 2.00 technical ball work and set plays at three and then cool down jog and stretches at 415. So it does make it almost impossible to compare. Like if you look at the diets of oh, yeah. players back then, you know, eating tons of red meat on the day of the game. I know in, I'm Canadian, so I know quite a bit about the history of hockey. A lot of players, you know, drinking a few beers the same day as a game. Right. Uh, it's very difficult to make that comparison, but if we remove the word best from this conversation and just say who was more dominant in their time, 
Do you believe that Lily Parr was more dominant than Messi or Ronaldo? Well, uh, as Gail uh, Newsham pointed out in her last episode, uh, in her first year, you know, she was 14, 15 years old when she started with the Dickerleys, uh, another player, Flory Redford, in something like 65 games, uh, she had scored 170 goals, and Lily Parr only managed like 107 or 108. Um, so at the beginning of you know, her career, she was certainly not the best striker that was out there. Uh, but she would commonly, you know, score a hat trick, like almost every game. The different teams um, had staggeringly different investments in, in in the team. So, you know, the Dakar ladies, Alfred Franklin was invested a lot of money and time into those players. Uh, whereas a lot of the teams that they faced, uh, just like the United States versus Thailand over the summer, like they, they were semi-amateur teams. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think over her career, Lily Parr was possibly the best striker over that long period of time. Flurry Redford might have been better, but her career was much shorter. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think Flurry Redford may have retired from playing football sometime in the late 20s. Um, I'm not sure at what point like like Lily Parr gets to be that much better a striker than Flurry Redford. Lily Parr, her career lasted like 30 years. Actually, 34 if you include St. Helens, which she played for for a couple of years. Hmm. You know, uh, a lot of the times when people are doing the comparison between Messi and Ronaldo, the the sort of, I guess, counterpoint against Messi is that he's always played with uh, Hernandez and Iniesta, the two most dominant midfielders possibly in our era. Did Lily play with the best players at the time, or was she sort of like... Ronaldo, kind of like, you know, out on an island by herself. Well, that, that's the thing about the, the Dick Here ladies. Um, the, the, I mean, by 1920-21, there are 150 at least, like, fully professional women's teams in England. And they would basically take every good player they could find. You know, if they could find, like, the 25 best female players in England... They get them a job at the factory, and then later at the hospital. Uh, so they had a job, and they got paid for the matches as well. Uh, hmm. So, I mean, when when uh, the Dickier ladies went to France, um, and it seems to me that they went just starting in 1920, just about every year for four or five years, they were almost never beaten. You know, I, I mentioned uh, in one match uh, when they. I think it was the first time the French came to, to England, the, the final match. Um, the Dicure ladies lost, but that's because one of their players was knocked unconscious. Hmm. And, and it was before substitutions, so like they were playing with 10 against 11, and the French barely won that. I think it was 2-1. Huh. So we're talking about a player who made a debut in 1919. When we talk about Ronaldo and Messi, when we talk about how good they are, do you think that we're going to still be talking about them 80 years from now in the same way that we're talking about Lily Parr? You know, I, I think well, I, I hope we're going to be talking about Lily Parr for a long time. Um, I think, you know, somebody like Pele, um, part of the reason people know his name, especially in the United States, which is not really a soccer country, is he did everything first. You know, he was in, you know, so, so I don't, I forget how many back-to-back uh, uh, World Cups he was in. He was just an amazing player, and 
he was famous because he was not just because he was good, but because he was first. And I, I think you know maybe Ronaldo and Messi, they're, they're first at several things, but maybe not. I, I kind of think Messi's. We'll be talking about him for a while. I don't know about Ronaldo, but mm-hmm. it, part, I mean part of that fame is that they they did it first. Sure. I mean, what would you say? Lily did with regards to the perception of the women's game? Uh, well, one, one of the most interesting things, and I, I hate that I can't find quotes from her because she couldn't be quoted in papers at the time. Um, she was just unapologetic, unapologetically who she was. Right, right. And, and like she was, she was like that on the field and off. It's just like, this is who I am, take it or leave it. And, and Yeah. And uh, how much footage of her exists playing? Uh, there's a lot of still photos. Uh, if you look at, uh, go on YouTube and look at British Pathé, um, P-A-T-H-E, um, there is a decent amount of footage of her, but it's not focused on her. It's focused on the, the Dick Care ladies. Uh, so it's the whole team either playing or training or whatever. Uh, but once you, uh, you know, recognize her, you know, from a couple different angles and, you know, different, I mean, obviously she grows up in ages and whatever. But, you know, once you recognize her, she's in most of the clips. Hmm. So maybe, you know, if we were to approach this question, Messi, Ronaldo, or Parr, from a different angle altogether, uh, my question for you is, who is more inspirational in your mind out of the three? Well, there's a couple different factors there. Um, I I know uh, Ronaldo came from a a poor background and, you know, soccer brought him up from the ghetto and Messi did not. You know, he was relatively well off middle-class Argentinian family, from what I understand. Uh, Lily Parr uh, was a totally working-class family. Um, she, you know, had a job, and I forget what she, what she did when she was a 14-year-old when she played with uh, St. Helens. Uh, but she got a job at 14, more or less because she had to. Uh, and that's how she found football at St. Helens. She got poached into uh, the Care Ladies uh, and worked at, at a munitions factory, which... I think at that point had been converted back to an electrical factory. Uh, and then she became uh, an international superstar when in a sport that didn't exist. Um, then she became a nurse while still doing that other thing, you know, playing, playing soccer. Uh, and did all of it while basically, you know, being openly gay. Like, I, you know, in terms of the, th- the three which, like, their life story is more interesting and, and possibly more inspiring. I think, hands down, it's a little bit par. Her being a pioneer for LGBT rights as well as women's sports far surpasses anything that Messi or Ronaldo has done, to my mind. Um, if we take par out of the equation, it's the age-old question, you know, everybody has an opinion. Messi or Ronaldo for you? Uh, I think for a couple of reasons, Messi. Um, in terms of, like, who I find to be, like, a, a better player, um, and partly it's just he's just a nicer guy <laughs> yeah I think personality probably has a lot to do with it in your mind uh, Chris who would in the female game be Ronaldo and who would be Messi uh, in terms of personality uh, I, I, I don't know that I could rec- like n- no like, I don't I just think Ronaldo is a little bit too arrogant and off the top of my head I cannot think of a, a single women's player that is that arrogant <laughs> yeah 
no, I suppose so. And, and you know, to his credit, I mean, I, I suppose he deserves to be a little bit arrogant. I think he does take it over the top, but I mean, he is unbelievable. And as a diehard yeah. Manchester United fan, he brought the club that I support a ton of glory. So it's hard to dislike him. I just wish he would tone that side down a little sure. bit more. But, you know, if you got it, you know, flaunt it, as they say. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to uh, a, a, another woman who's a, a huge fan of the women's game. One of the things I really enjoy about watching any women's game, uh, it, you know, in a men's game, there's people in the stands screaming and swearing at the players. And you know, there, there's all sorts of, like, really bad chants. People are, you know, fans are getting, you know, lifetime bans for things that they say. When you go to watch a women's match in person, you're surrounded by little kids. And they're into the game. You know, like, if, if you have a question, who's that player? Who does she play for? The, the six-year-old sitting next to you probably knows. So it's a, it's a whole different atmosphere. It's great. Yeah, of course. I, I think you can make that comparison, too, between, you know, football or soccer, as you want to call it, over in Europe compared to North American sports. I mean, a lot of the sports I attend over here, whether it be hockey, basketball, baseball, it is sort of more geared toward families. You know, they've got no drinking zones. You have the mascots that come on. You've got all the different songs and whatnot over in Europe where I lived for a number of years. I mean, you shout abuse at both the players and the other team supporters. It's a different dynamic altogether. Mm -hmm. And it is a dynamic in which you can feel deeply uncomfortable if you're not sort of in the right headspace for that sort of thing. Oh yeah. When, you know, uh, one of the things that it's difficult to understand in, uh, North American sports and in a lot of places, um, the, the clubs were, were more than just a club. It was like your whole community. Like in, in some cases, especially in poor countries or, or many years ago, the team doctor was your neighborhood doctor. Yeah, totally. You know, it's, so it, it, it's like you're, you're, the, the team is your family. It's your neighborhood. It's your community. And, you know, for example, like with the NFL or even the NHL or whatever, it, it, it doesn't get that into your life. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, the franchise setup versus the club setup. I lived in southeast England, or southeast London, rather, for a number of years, right beside the Millwall grounds. And, you know, I, I load the team, and there's a lot of issues with the team. But that being said, it is sort of a hub for the community there. I think you can drop off your kids at the age of five, mm -hmm. and, you know, they can go up the system all the way until they're a proper adult. And it does do wonders for community, especially in southeast London there where Millwall is sort of situated around Wisham, there's a lot of socioeconomic issues. And, you know, if you can have a place for kids to go and take part in sport, it does keep them out of trouble. And it does sort of, you know, uh, really present these kids with a, a positive identity that they can associate with. Mm -hmm. And it's just altogether different from any sport you'd see here where, you know, you could be supporting whatever franchise you'd like and that franchise can just up and move you know, the next season, if you re relocate it, uh, there's a certain, I guess, fickleness with it all. Hmm. So as I'm just getting ready to go here, could you kindly tell me, what are some things that I should be looking forward to in the women's game going forward? The big news um, this week is Sam Kerr is going to go play in Europe for probably the most money that any female players ever made. Uh, which, you know, is bad for my Chicago Red Stars, that's where she played, and it's bad for the Australian W League, but it's good for women's soccer. Uh, wherever she ends up, uh, that's they're going to be broadcasting more of those games. Uh, the Women's Super League, uh, you can now watch every single game, no matter where you are in the world, on, on the uh, FA Player app. 
Uh, Alex Morgan, uh, congratulations to her. She got pregnant. For some reason, she had something to celebrate right after the World Cup. She was, she's due in April, um, which might be interesting for how the U.S. team uh, racks up for uh, the Olympics next year. Um, and everywhere, every single league that I'm paying attention to after this World Cup, they, they seem to have a World Cup bump every World Cup, but this time it seems to be sustained. So hmm. that that's good. Perfect. Well, I do want to say, you know, as somebody that I talk to you from time to time in the Slack channel, uh, I'm very impressed with your initiative, and I really hope to see this podcast keep going. All right, well, great. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us. Do you have any last thoughts on, on Lily Parr, uh, Dick Kerr's ladies? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's amazing everything that she had to overcome. And, you know, not only did she overcome it all, but she just dominated. I mean, when you look at the overall goal tally of, you know, plus 900, it does dwarf Messi and Ronaldo. And it is a little curious why we don't know more about her. But, you know, hopefully through initiatives such as your podcast and, you know, other people's writings, you know, you had a very smart and prominent author on the female uh, game come on your last show you know hopefully we can sort of just continue to learn about all of this yeah well great well mike thank you so much for joining us and, and your thoughts on uh, on the women's game and, and if anybody uh, wants to check out the english premier league the podcast you want to listen to is epl pod it's it's smart it's also funny uh, it's twice a week so go check out eplpod.com or wherever you get your podcasts thanks chris thanks a lot mike Thanks for listening, as always. Uh, if you like the show, please share it uh, with anyone you think might be interested. If you'd like to join the discussion or uh, see pictures of some of the players and teams, if you have a story to tell, please join our Slack channel. Uh, check the show notes. Mike's podcast, again, is eplpod.com or wherever you get your podcast. Gail Newsham's book, In a League of Their Own, about the Dick Care Ladies. Uh, there's a link to it in the show notes as well. Uh, next time on the Forgotten Eleven, we are going to France. So, I look forward to seeing you then, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>